Grace, mercy, and peace to you. These are yours from God our Father and from our Savior Jesus Christ, the light of the world, who came just as God promised. We've been talking about, about promises this morning, and we heard that in the kids' message this morning, right? The, have you ever stopped to actually think, though, how difficult it is to keep a promise? I don't know about you, but there are times where I'm, I'm reluctant to even say, I promise, right? Because I know how hard it is to keep a promise. And we are experts at finding them and pointing them out. When, when other people make a promise and they fail, it's like a national pastime with politicians, right? Oh, you said you were going to do this and this and this, and you really did this and this and this. But are we really so different? I mean, the the scope is maybe a little different, and the publicity behind it is certainly different, but, but I think we probably have just as hard of a time actually doing what we say. Now, there are all kinds of reasons for that, right? Sometimes we just overcommit. <laughs> I couldn't get it done. I'm sorry. I had too much on my plate. I didn't have enough time, whatever it might be. There are other times where I just dropped the ball. I forgot. Until it, was, until it was too late. Other times, it's circumstances that are beyond our control, right? We, we promise to be somewhere at a certain time, and we go jump in the car, and it won't start. Or, or we're behind a car that gets into an accident, and the whole intersection is closed down, and they're writing up the police reports, and the ambulance comes, and there's no way we're going to get there on time. Or we promise we're going to get this thing done, and then we become violently ill. That takes us totally offline for a couple of days. And it's just not possible. It was, it was outside of our control. But yet we still failed to keep our word or keep our promise. And I don't know about you, but when I think of how often I say I'm going to do something, I, even if it's internally, mentally, I say I'm going to get this done and this done, and I don't, uh, it, it can become a little bit, I can become a little cynical, right? Uh, that there's even times where I know how often I fail to follow through on what I say I'm going to do, when I say I'm going to do it, how I said I was going to do it, that I sometimes project that. Other people say, yeah, I'll be there. And I think, okay, right? The delivery guy says, I'll be there between this time and this time. And we go, hmm, see you tomorrow. The car company says, yeah, we warranty this. And you go, Mm, I'm not so sure. In fact, to the point maybe where we're almost, we become so jaded that we're almost surprised when people keep a promise. The hard part is because we know our own failures, we start to project that onto others that I think there's even a temptation, maybe even a tendency that we project our failure onto God. And that's where our first takeaway comes in this morning because it's an important point for us to wrestle and understand about ourselves that because I struggle to trust, I struggle to trust God's promises because I know how much I struggle to keep my own promises. Knowing how we struggle, though, we need to stop when it comes to projecting our failure onto God. Full stop, don't go any further. See, the reason we struggle to keep our promises because we are, are broken people, we're sinful, we're fallen people. We, and, and so our, 
our promises come from a heart that is broken. Our word, by its very nature, to some extent, is broken because it has its source in a broken heart, a broken soul, a broken person. And so no, no matter how hard I try, there are going to be times where I simply fail. No matter how good my intentions are, no matter how hard I tried, I still fail. But God doesn't have that problem. Because God is not sinful and he is not broken. He is whole and holy. And so he has no issue. The the all-powerful, all-knowing God has no problem making everything work exactly as he promises. That's an important point for us to remember. It's tremendously comforting for us as, as believers in God who turn to him, right, who trust him for forgiveness and for peace and for strength and for comfort every single day, that I know that what I am trusting in, who I am trusting in, will not fail. I might. In fact, I probably will. But he won't. And that's why the words that we're going to consider from Luke chapter 4 this morning are so immensely important. Because they're all about God's promises. As Jesus continues to show himself to be the light of the world, we've seen how he did that, right, to those wise men who came from thousands of miles away, that, that, those magi who came to find him. We saw how he was baptized, right, and God spoke, God the Father thundered from heaven, honoring him, this is my son whom I love. Today, though, we find Jesus making explicitly clear that he is the very person he claims to be. He is the promised Messiah, the promised Savior that God had said was going to come. He's here. Let's take a look at Luke chapter 4, beginning at verse 14. Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and news about him spread throughout the whole countryside. He was teaching in their synagogues, and everyone praised him. Now pause for just a moment there. So Galilee is the region north of Jerusalem. And Jesus was going from town and village and city. And when he would enter the town, he would do what? He would go to the local church, the synagogue. Because there he would find faithful Jewish believers who were there to worship and to study, right? To study God's word, to hear about the Savior, the Messiah that they were waiting for. So Jesus did that. And he went to the different churches, and as he went, the people noticed something. He would teach and he would preach, and well, it wasn't just that like this person, boy, I really like his style, and somebody else, you know what, doesn't, it's not doing it for me. Notice what it says, everyone praised him. They recognized there's something about this teacher that's different from all the rest, that his word Not only it's in line with God's word, it it is God's word. They recognize there's something different about this teacher. Okay? Now we pick up verse 16. He, Jesus, went to Nazareth, where he'd been brought up. And on the Sabbath day, he went into the synagogue as was his custom. He stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is on me. Because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, 
to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him, and he began by saying to them, Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. So Jesus had been going throughout the Judean or Galilean countryside, and eventually he gets to his hometown, Nazareth. And he does what he'd done in every other town. He went to the, the synagogue, but this one's, this one's different. Because this is the church that he grew up in. This is the church that he went to every week, probably a couple of times a week. He had been in this church thousands of times to hear God's word, to worship, to study. But now he comes and he was welcomed as a visiting rabbi, as a, a teacher. And they honored him as such. And they gave him the opportunity to read one of the scripture readings and, and to explain to them, to teach them. Now, since the Old Testament wasn't you know, contained in a nice, neat, single-volume book like we have today in our Bibles, but was instead a, a, a scrolls, the synagogue attendant took the scroll of Isaiah to give to Jesus. And instead of just opening it up, a little, unrolling it a little bit, and, and reading from that section and explaining to them, which would have been amazing in and of itself, to hear God explain this section of the Bible, Jesus went to the heart of it. He unrolled it until he found the place that we heard a few minutes ago from Isaiah 61, the section that Jesus read here. Because he wanted to show them who he was and why he had come. See, the people that were gathered there, they were, they were knowledgeable about the Bible. They were knowledgeable about the Old Testament scriptures. They knew what these verses were about, that this was about the promised Messiah, and so as Jesus read these verses, they were, they were waiting expectantly, right? They're, they sat rapture, just dead quiet, eyes fixed on him. What is he going to teach us about the Savior? Because they knew those verses were about the promised Savior. So what is he going to tell us? And with eight words, eight words, Jesus preached a whole sermon. I'm no Jesus, mine are much longer. But with eight words, Jesus preached a whole sermon about God's promises. He preached a whole sermon about how God had made a promise back in the Garden of Eden to Adam and Eve, about how God had promised to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob that he was going to send a Savior, how he had made that promise to Moses and through Moses to his people. How he had expanded on that to David that the Savior was going to come from his line, his family. That throughout the centuries, through the prophets, God had sent messengers that, that gave glimpses and pictures of who this Savior was going to be, where he was going to be from, what he was going to do. And then Jesus said, these words are fulfilled in your hearing. See, Jesus wanted them to focus on what all of Scripture is about. It's about God's, well, our second takeaway, God's greatest promise was to send a Savior. Now, sadly, there were plenty of people who'd given up on that promise. I mean, think about it. 
Right? David was a thousand years, give or take, before Jesus spoke these words, before this event happened. A thousand years. I mean, in modern American terms, that is like infinity. Right? A long time ago was 20 minutes. A thousand years? Was, they've been waiting a, more than a thousand years. That's, that seems like eternity. It seems like it's impossible to us with such a short attention span, right? And, and so there were plenty of people who, you know, I bet God just forgot. I mean, we understand. We do that, right? Oh, yeah, I made that promise and I totally spaced on it. Maybe they thought that he tried. He, he really tried. He tried his best, but it just couldn't make it work. Maybe there were some who, who thought that, you know, God had, he had good intentions, but he kind of overcommitted himself. Whatever their reasoning, they were waiting. But they were still waiting. More than a thousand years, more than 2,000 years later. And so, I mean, if, if God's going to take 2,000 years, I'm, I'm not sure he's actually going to do it. We can kind of understand that thinking, can't we? I mean, we still do it today, that, that sort of thinking that God, you know, I haven't seen it, so it probably isn't going to happen. We know that all too well. When, when things don't go the way we wanted, when some unexpected difficulty arises, when there's some natural disaster, what, do we, what is the common world thinking? Ha, prove it. Where is God now? See, they take it as proof that God can't keep his promise. God isn't actually where he says he is. God isn't actually doing what he says he's doing. And don't we do that too? That we doubt God? That we, well, we kind of project our failures onto him, right? He's going to, he promises big, but, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to expect small. Because that's how I, I operate. God makes these promises, but I haven't seen them all come true. I mean, I look at my life, and it's still full of difficulty and pain and heartache, and it's not easy. I thought he was going to make it easy. I thought this was supposed to be good. I thought, I thought he was going to take away my problems. So where is he? Did he fail? He must have, because I haven't seen it yet. We're tempted to think that way, aren't we? To, to think that... He probably tried, but he just couldn't deliver. He probably wanted to, but, you know, maybe he forgot. Maybe he's too busy with somebody else to help me today. We trap ourselves with those low and misplaced expectations. And that's why Jesus, with only eight words, he preached a whole sermon. A whole sermon about God's promises. He preached, a prom, he preached a sermon that God had promised to send a Savior. And here is that Savior. For those people sitting in the synagogue in Nazareth, sitting with them, speaking to them, visible to their eyes, audible to their ears, that Savior, true God, the Messiah, in the flesh, He had come. Shine in the light just as God had promised. But it's important to keep in mind Jesus didn't just come. He wasn't just born to fulfill a promise. 
you know those promises that you make and you go, oh, shoot, I got to get to this place by this time or I have to do this thing. And, and you do like sort of a, a half-hearted version just so you can say, I kept my promise. That's not what this was. God wasn't just, oh boy, I've let this slip for a couple thousand years. I better send somebody quick. This was a promise he kept, not just to keep it, but to fulfill the whole purpose that he was going to send a Savior to begin with. See, he wasn't just going through the motions. He was sending a Messiah, the anointed one, the chosen one, the one that was going to come and rescue all people. And that's why Jesus could speak those words. This is fulfilled in your hearing. Not just a person is here, but the Savior is here. That's why it's important for us to keep in mind our third takeaway, that Jesus is the fulfillment of God's promises and God's purpose for coming into this world, for promising to rescue us in the first place. See, because those words that Jesus read from Isaiah 61, right? He talked about the poor and the oppressed and the blind. You know who he's talking about? He's not talking about the the folks that are under the bridge downtown, although he's talking about them too. He's actually talking about the people that are sitting here. We don't like to think about that, do we? But we are. We are exactly the people that he's talking about because by nature, you and I, along with everyone else, are those poor and the blind and the broke and the oppressed. We might think, well, but wait a minute, I'm not, I mean, I'm not, I'm not broke, right? I definitely go for some more, but I'm not broke. But God isn't talking about what's in your bank account. He's talking about what's in your heart. He's talking spiritually speaking, right? Jesus often repeatedly used this, blessed are those who are spiritually poor, right? The poor. He's talking in the Beatitudes. He he says that explicitly, and he's doing the same here. And he's talking about those who on their own don't have righteousness, who have this massive debt of sin that has been built up and are lacking the perfection that God demands. He's talking about those who are are spiritually blind, who fail to see the gravity of their sin and, and how that's leading them down a path that ends for eternity in hell. He's talking to people who are are spiritually prisoners, right? Literally, the word is POWs, right? These are people who have no freedom of their own. They they can't do anything but what they're told to do. And what they're told to do by nature is sin and disobey God and do the opposite of what God wants and do it again and again and again. He's speaking to people who are oppressed, not by some evil dictator, but by sin, by guilt that is just crushing, that's eating away at us, not from the outside, but from the inside, that plagues our our hearts and our conscience and our souls every second of every day. And that's why Jesus came. He came for the poor, 
and the captives and the blind and the oppressed. Jesus came to to make us rich, right? Because not only on the cross did he take away our debt of sin, but what it is, he says he credits us with his perfection and we now stand before God with riches. Not not riches that, that money some stored away in an offshore account reflect, but riches beyond our imagination, riches that that no earthly thing could buy. Because what's the price of forgiveness? Of peace for our hearts and our souls? Peace with God. What's the price of eternity in heaven? The Bible says it's not with gold or silver, but it's with the precious blood of Jesus. And he shed that so that you might have the greatest riches the world has ever known. He came to free you. Now you might say, but we're already free. We live in the land of the free and the home of the brave, right? This is the kind of freedom that, that not even William Wallace can shout about. This is the kind of freedom that, that can't be won by you or me because it's the f- freedom from sin. It's freedom from looking at God as an angry judge who's going to give us what we rightfully deserve. It's the freedom now to see him as he is. It's the freedom to be able to to fight against and to to turn away from sin. It's the freedom to live a life that pleases God because he lives in me. He's taken off the, the, given us freedom from that spiritual glaucoma, right? That, That we can now see. We're no longer blind, but we see God as he really is, this loving Savior. And we don't no longer see the the commands that he gives us as this burdensome, impossible thing that we just can't do. How do you, what do you want from me, God? But instead we see his commands the way our opening psalm described them. Right, this beautiful thing that gives us an opportunity for for joyfully living for him. He's given us relief. Right, from oppression, from, from that weighed down and crushed feeling that, that sin is just going to do me in, that's going to, to sink me. That all of the stupid things, the wrong things, the why did I say that, why did I do that, things that I've done in my past, that instead of those being this anchor that just keeps pulling at me, Jesus took that. All of the weight of that guilt, the crushing weight of it, and he took it on the cross. And then he died And he rose again to prove that he had conquered it. He destroyed it. He removed it all forever. And the burden of it, well, it's gone. See, Jesus came to do the greatest, to give us exactly what he promised, to free us forever. All of that is actually in the sermon that Jesus preached. Eight words. Did pretty well, didn't he? In eight words, he preached on God's promises, all of who he was and what he had come to do. And here's the beauty of that. It's our last takeaway this morning. That because God kept his greatest promise to send a Savior to free us from sin, to relieve us from guilt, because of that, I can be sure he will keep every promise. 
So when I feel unloved, well, that's not true. When I feel alone, well, that's not true. Because God promises he will never leave me or forsake me. God promises that he loves me beyond anything that I can even understand. God promises that, he is, that I am his child. God promises I am go- he's going to take me to heaven with him. And because of Jesus, because of his greatest promise, and that he kept that one perfectly, every other promise I can have absolute assurance and certainty in. And so can you. And that's a good thing, right? Because we struggle to keep our promises. And that's, that's not going to change just because we know this truth. Just because God keeps his promises doesn't magically mean I'm going to keep all of mine. And same goes true for other people. They're still going to fail me. But God, he won't. Not ever. His promises are always sure and certain. And so as you, as you head out today, as you go back to a world of, of broken promises and empty dreams, find your hope here in the short sermon Jesus preached that said everything about promises. That in God, in Him, they're all 100% sure. So that you have confidence that as you listen to Him, as you read His Word, every single thing He says to you is true. Amen.